Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's uh, turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and I'll read the first 12 verses. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, And they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at your word that you would bless us, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts to understand your word, and that all of our thoughts and meditations would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So last time when we were in this passage, it's been a, a number of weeks ago, but last time we thought about the distinctions that are made in Scripture and that Jesus made in this particular prayer in John 17. He said that he was praying for those whom the Father had given him, but he was not praying for the world. The scriptures are replete with distinctions, right? Old man, new man, uh, sheep and goats, believers and unbelievers, uh, the elect and the reprobate, godly and godless, saints and sinners. Um, scripture is always making distinctions. Postmodernism wants to erase all distinctions, but Scripture and Jesus, who are eternal, um, insists that we retain these distinctions. And so this evening we're going to think about a a particular very concrete example of another distinction, that between Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus, and the rest of the apostles. And so now as as we read, we learn a number of things about Judas. Right. First, we learn uh, that he has a name other than Judas. Right. Judas has a name other than Judas, and he's called the son of perdition. 
Son of perdition, you probably know that the word perdi- what the word perdition means. It means it's just another way of saying eternal destruction or damnation. What, what does it mean, though, for Jesus to call Judas the son of damnation, the son of perdition? So Jesus is using a Hebrew idiom when the Hebrews wanted to state that someone was absolutely given over to something or devoted to something. They would say that he was the son of something. Right, as if he came from that something. In First Samuel, David says to Saul's servants, you must surely die. That is how our English translations would put it. But the Hebrew literally is, you are surely sons of death. Right? It, it, you, that's the marginal reading in the NASB. So saying that Saul's servants were sons of death meant that they were most assuredly going to die. They were death like uh, descended from death. Um, Remember what Jesus calls the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And so there's there's no stronger way, really, to say that someone is devoted to something. The Pharisees were devoted to hell. The Pharisees are so devoted to hell, hell is their father and they are its sons. So in the case of Judas, Jesus is saying uh, perdition, eternal damnation is Judas's father. Damnation is such a part of Judas, he was born for damnation. Damnation is his father, he is damnation's son, and he is most assuredly damned. Another thing we learn about Judas in our verse this evening is that the perishing of the son of perdition was a fulfillment of Scripture, right? Scripture's prophecies were fulfilled by the loss of Judas. In Acts 1, when the apostles are figuring out what to do with that seat that was abandoned by Judas, it tells us exactly what prophecies of Scripture were fulfilled. Psalm 69, 25, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. In Psalm 109, verse 8, let another man take his office. And so scripture is fulfilled in in Judas, in his role and in his history. Let me also clarify something. It, It seems as if in this verse, verse 12, Jesus is saying something along these lines. He's saying, I had the 12 apostles and I was keeping them and I only lost Judas. Right. In other words, Judas was was saved and and by his own actions fell from grace. Now, if these if these were the only words we had about these men, this might be a logical conclusion. But in the sermon immediately preceding this prayer during the Last Supper, Jesus makes it clear that Judas was not his was not chosen for salvation. He was not one of the true apostles. In John thirteen sixteen, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread is lifted up his heel against me. So right there, he says, I know the ones I have chosen. Therefore, there's a distinction made there between those that he has chosen and those and the one he has not. And again, after the prayer, we, um, 
In John 18, Jesus again says the same thing. As he is being arrested, he says, I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Right? Jesus did not lose one of those whom the Father had given to him. Judas had a different father. Judas had a father called perdition, and so was not one of those given from the Father to the Son. And then, honestly, you just look at the high priestly prayer and the prayer that's, that's said there, and it's all about how the Father has given the Son certain things. right? And it's clear that Judas was not given to the Son Now, let's take a step back. Who was Judas? Who was this Judas? Was it evident? And this is is what I was thinking about as I contemplated this passage. Was it evident to the others that he was the bad sheep? That he was the unbeliever in the midst of believers? I don't think it was. I don't think it was immediately obvious. It was to Jesus. right? He knew the ones that the Father had given to him and, and who was not. But I don't think it was obvious to the other believers. When the apostles argued about who it was who would betray Jesus, they didn't all stop and point at Judas. Right? They they pointed at, they just exonerated themselves, but they didn't say, oh, that's very clear. You know, it's the guy who's been stealing from the money, and, uh, and he's out. They don't point to Judas and say, that's easy. Each of them, including Judas himself, only said that he knew I mean, even Judas said this. He knew that he wasn't the one who would betray him. In fact, Judas had likely done great works for the Lord. It's likely that Judas had performed miracles in Jesus' name. In Matthew chapter 10, we read this. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, 12, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Nowhere do we read anything about the apostles returning and saying, what's up with Judas? He couldn't do what we were doing. You know, we, we went out and it was great. And it was No, they all return and they have reports of, of these amazing works that they were able to do. Judas sat at the feet of Jesus for those three years, learning from the mouth of the almighty incarnate word of God. He did incredible works that could only be explained as the very power of God. He most likely preached the name of Jesus and proclaimed the name of Jesus to the Jews who were looking for the coming Messiah. There would likely be some who reflected back on how they came to faith and were astonished that it was through the ministry of Judas that they accepted Jesus. Right? Amazing that he preached the word and went out and performed miracles and men. Perhaps there were some who accepted Christ, who were born again through his work, through the work of the Spirit in his work. And that man, Judas Iscariot, betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. As I understand it, that would be about four months' wages. So based on the average U.S. income today, this would be about $13,000. He betrayed the Lord for 13K, a cheap little compact car. You see, Judas loved money. He loved money. His sin was loving money, which we know from Scripture is the root of all kinds of evil. It, it, is, an, it is an opening to, the, to many other evils. 
The evil in this case leading to the betrayal of Jesus Christ. He loved money and it led him down the path to the point where he would betray the Son of God. We read this about Judas' sin in John chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with them. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this, and this commentary is in Scripture. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So he wanted more money in the money box. He wanted... He, he rebuked this woman for wasting money that he could have stolen. And so the love of money, we could say, led to the most spectacular sin that has ever been committed. The love of money. And perhaps that's why Paul, when he's writing to Timothy about money, says that it's the root of all kinds of evil, right? The love of money. John Piper writes on this, I think the most spectacular sin ever committed was the murder of the Son of God. That begs the question, which sin is in the murder was the most spectacular? Was it the driving of the nails, the thrusting of the spear, the expediency of Pilate, the mockery of Herod, the weaving of the thorns and pushing them down on his head with glee? Was it Peter's denial? Was it the abandonment of all the twelve? Or... Judas, who kissed him for 30 pieces of silver. If you forced me to choose one of those, it would be Judas, because of the combination of evils in the heart of Judas. He held the money bag, and he was called a thief. His love of money was so great that he betrayed a man that, had lived, that he had lived with for three years, the very Son of God. He sold him for 30 pieces of silver, and then he kissed him as the sign of the betrayal. And so Piper thinks, yeah, that, there's nothing more gnarly, nothing more sinful than that act. But, I mean, even, I mean, you go back and you think of the soldiers spitting in Jesus' face. But they're, they're, they're Romans, right? They're Romans mocking what they think is a, mocking, a, 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 a mock king. And so we would expect that from Romans. But Judas was one of the twelve. He sat at the feet of Jesus. He performed miracles. He did these things, and yet with a kiss, he betrayed him. In fact, the sin of Judas is so bad, Jesus says, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. You know who spoke right after Jesus said that? Judas did. He said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And you know what Judas already had in his possession when he said that? He had 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. Here's something else we know about Judas. He was a tool of the great hater of God, Satan. In John 6.70, Jesus said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? 
In Luke chapter 22, we read about how Satan entered into Judas. In John 13, we read about how the devil had already put into Judas's heart to, uh, to will to betray Jesus. Satan is using Judas to get to Jesus. And it makes, me think of, it makes me think of the chapter we read in Revelation this morning about the dragon, right? Afflicting the, um, the, the, the woman, right? But here's Judas now being tutored by that devil, that dragon, right? Satan is using Judas to get to Jesus. Here's something else we know about Judas. We know how his story ends, Right, Scripture says this, Now when morning came, this is Matthew 27, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the, the, the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. There's a prophecy in Jeremiah about the that purchase of that field. And there is the blood of, of Judas who betrayed the Lord. More fulfilled prophecy, but think for a moment about the fact that Judas, the son of perdition, felt remorse. He felt sad about what he had done. He regretted it. He had remorse. He felt remorse at what he had done to Jesus. He regretted, he lamented, and was saddened. Seems like repentance, doesn't it? But it's not. Remorse is not repentance. Remorse is never repentance. It may lead to repentance, and usually it is one of those things that leads, that is in the process of repentance, but it is not repentance. Judas does not repent, even though he has remorse. His remorse does not lead him to plea for mercy. It doesn't, plea, it doesn't lead him to bow before Jesus and ask for forgiveness. It doesn't, like Peter, lead him to weep bitterly after he betrays the Lord. No, Judas's remorse leads him to hang himself from a tree by a rope. That's what his remorse did. And don't confuse remorse for sin with repentance for sin. Remorse, sadness, regret, some trouble of mind... You know, angst may, by God's mercy, be the path that leads to repentance, but it's not repentance. It's not a turning from sin. Um, you, if, how can you tell the difference between remorse for sin and repentance for sin? If you stop with remorse for sin, you will mope and never change. Right? You'll just be sad. You'll just have regrets. But you will never change. If you repent for sin, you may have remorse, but it will end. When you change and walk newly. 
Judas was, was like his father Esau, another son of perdition. Right? See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Right? No place for repentance, but he cried, he regretted, he was filled with angst. He searched for that, and yet he did not repent. Now, the last thing, last thing on Judas that I'll say is this. Judas is a lover of money, willing to betray even Jesus for a certain figure. He's a tool of Satan who entered into his heart. Judas is the very son of perdition who works, fulfill the prophecies of Scripture. And there is one last thing. He is a tool of the Almighty God. He's a tool of the Almighty God. The evil that Judas chose was chosen for him by God. The entrance of Satan into his heart was superintended by God himself. The prophecies of Scripture were fulfilled in Judas according to the, the um, undefeatable providence of God. Right? What Judas intended for evil, God intended for good. What Judas wanted, God decreed. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hand of godless men and put him to death. Judas was one of those godless men by which Jesus was nailed to the cross. The betrayal of Jesus led Jesus to the cross. The betrayal of Judas was the final act of the son of perdition, leading his soul to eternal punishment. Does that fact not make you awe at the power of God? Right? Does that fact not make you break your knees before Almighty God and worship Him? That God directs all things. That God directs all things, even Judas' rebellion, to His glory. That is a God that should be worshipped and should be trusted. The one who is directing the course of history to his glory. So Jesus understood the mind-boggling nature of that reality. He also understood that we are so twisted that we might be inclined to say that because God is using all things to his glory, we may as well go on sinning. Let's sin so grace may abound. Let's be like Judas, that God might work good out of evil. And I think that is why, as we read earlier, he said this, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. In other words, this is going to happen because God has ordained it. It's the fulfillment of his word. Nonetheless, woe to that man who does it. Woe to that man who does it. Judas, the son of perdition, the tool of Satan, the one naturally inclined to the love of money, the one who was the fulfillment of God's eternal decrees, happily and willfully and freely did everything he ever did. It truly would have been better for him if he had not been born. There's no other conclusion we can come to when Jesus hangs together God's providence in Judas's sin. He pronounces a curse on Judas, though what he was doing against Jesus had been appointed by God. But remember, the providence was God's, the sin was Judas's. 
And this is why Jesus put it as he did. Judas was born for and happily living for damnation. And the last thing I'll say is this, and it's just one thing that occurred to me. As you contemplate Judas, um, if you have any sense that your profession of Christ is hypocritical, that it has been done as a show for somebody else, you must repent. Right? If, you're, if you're faith in Christ, you're, you're doing for show. Right? Or, or you're, you're, you're professing faith in Christ because your parents insist on it. Or, or your, your, your siblings. Or to please somebody that you know. Um, be careful. The, the, if your profession is hypocritical, that's not faith and it will not save you. Right? If your profession is knowingly hypocritical, you're no better off than Judas. His profession was hypocritical. He lived for money. He hid it and acted like the, the schoolboy, the, the, you know, Sunday school going, um, Dude, although he was stealing all along. If your profession is knowingly hypocritical, you're like Judas. Love the Father and the Son. Believe in his name. Right? Worship your creator and bow your knees before him. Make your profession right before God. Believe in him and, and, and don't be a son of Judas. Right? Don't be one who hypocritically professes faith. Work out your faith before God. Right? Work it out. Don't believe because someone has told you to believe. Believe because you're damned if you don't. Believe because God is, is high and lifted up and he is worthy of your praise. Believe because he made you and you are obligated to worship him. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray and thank you for the example that we see in Judas. The warning it is to us, Father, it makes us reflect on the things we love, our own love of money. And Father, we ask that you would protect our souls from the destructiveness that the love of money brings. And Father, we pray that we would remain faithful, that Jesus would guard our hearts and our minds, that the Holy Spirit would guide us, that we would not grieve the Spirit. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.